get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to the first in a new podcast series, Shifts Happen, in which I will try, along with the help of my good friend Luke Grumman of FFT LLC, to chronicle what we believe to be a truly fundamental shift in the global monetary system in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting sanctions imposed by the West. Luke and I recorded a podcast about this shift uh, last month, and the response has been absolutely extraordinary. In the wake of that response, Luke has very kindly agreed to help me put together a series of podcasts in the months to come that will aim to identify and contextualize the dominoes that topple as a result of those sanctions in real time. What we'll be discussing is a story that's been unfolding quietly for a decade or so, but which has accelerated dramatically with the events of these last couple of months. If you haven't listened to that first podcast yet, you'll find it free in its entirety anywhere you listen to the Grant Williams podcast. So I'd strongly encourage you to give that a listen as it provides some essential background to the story. So with all that being said, please enjoy the first episode of Shifts Happen featuring Luke Grumman. Luke, hi, mate. How are you? I'm doing great, Grant. How are you this morning? I am doing just fine. I have to say, it's a it's a beautiful day, and we've got so much to talk about. I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Now, you you and I did a podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and we talked through much of what was going on with the Russian sanctions, why they were important, and uh, uh, the reason we had that conversation was because you, I think, better than anybody, have been looking into the future for some time now and, and pointing out what was likely to happen. Now, obviously, you didn't know about Ukraine. None of us did, but that seems to have been a huge accelerant. And the response to that podcast has been just phenomenal, and rightly so, because I think what you did in that was a masterclass. And so, you know, the idea of this series of podcasts is to really chronicle this whole situation as it plays out. And, you know, since we did that, it was, what, two, maybe three weeks ago, max? I mean, there's been so much happened around the fringes of this that are really making what you've been talking about for a long time look to be coming true at an accelerated rate. Now, For people listening to this, I'm going to point you back towards the podcast Luke and I did. Um, You'll find it under the Grant Williams podcast in uh, just about every major podcasting uh, app. You'll find it on the website for subscribers. Listen to that as a a primer for what we're going to talk about, because this really is going to carry on from that. And um, uh, I don't want to spend time rehashing that. And and I think you you should listen to Luke in all his glory laid out, because it really was, as I said, an absolute masterclass. But Luke, let's get to what's happened since then. I, I think we'll go back a little ways to start and, and just set the table with really, I think, the sanctions on the Russian central bank. Let, let's talk about what the West did and why that is perhaps the opening of Pandora's box, as you've put it. The sanctioning of Russia's FX reserves are going to be seen in, with the passage of time as a really big moment in history, perhaps akin to as big as Nixon closing the gold window, uh, the Berlin Wall coming down, uh, perhaps in 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 eighty nine, really that type of moment. And and why I refer to it as a Pandora's Pandora's box being open that can't be reclosed is we have seen now for the first time uh, the United States and the EU weaponizing FX reserves, sanctioning Russian FX reserves, which, as a reminder, are just the aggregated savings 
accrued over years of trade with the West. So basically, Putin sold energy to the West, earned dollars, euros, etc., put them in FX reserves, basically bank accounts in the West. And then in response to geopolitical developments, the West sanctioned those. It basically took that money. It would be akin to you or I having our money seized for something that we did. There's precedent for that happening to someone like you or I, or for an individual. There is no precedent to that for it being done for a G20 nation, for a G7 nation. And I think that's the important thing is, is You've seen the United States sanction Iran. You've seen the United States sanction Afghan reserves more recently. Uh, You've seen the UK seize Venezuelan gold. None of these nations are nuclear armed powers that also are G7 nations, G20 nations, and that are nations that are the world's biggest energy exporter and the world's biggest nation by landmass, et cetera. So I think it was a huge step in discrediting the FX reserves as a savings vehicle at the sovereign level. And so the reason I say it's a Pandora's box is is now you're not going to be able to sort of reconvince people, uh, at least I think in an investable time frame, convince the sovereigns not to begin diversifying away from FX reserves simply because so many other nations have been considered bad actors at some point. So for example, uh, around the Khashoggi situation, Saudi just three years ago was considered a bad actor. I hear credible rumblings that the Saudis found the move against Russian FX reserves to be uh, very uh, unnerving. Uh, the Japanese were bad actors to the U.S. in the 80s, the French in the 60s, the British in the 50s. Um, it's just the nature of global geopolitics and real politics. But it highlights the the fact that you can't save your accrued economic surpluses in something that can be used against you, given what appears to be increasing global tensions around a number of different factors going forward. That's a perfect way to set it up. Now, um, you know, what struck me, and we spoke about this in that first podcast, was um, the way this was done. It seemed to be a kind of knee-jerk reaction. And I, and I, I kind of go back to Draghi's whatever-it-takes speech uh, in 2012, you know, when he came out and gave that speech and you know, he said, we'll do whatever it takes to defend the euro, and believe me, it will be enough. And that was such a powerful message that carried so much weight and really did remarkable things in turning around what looked at that time like the inevitable demise of the European Union and the euro. And, you know, fast forward a few years, and you see that um, in Tim Geithner's book, I forget the title because uh, it's Tim Geithner, but he wrote in his book, and he talked about how Draghi had written those words on a napkin just before he went out on the stage. And at the time it was, you know, it was laid out as policy. It was, it was something that was clearly thought at the highest levels and, and it wasn't. He was winging it because he was under pressure. And I look at this response to the sanctions and there's a guy called Dilip Singh involved in this who, who I know you're aware of and I'm going to get you to talk about in a second. But from what I've seen, there was a great article in The New Yorker. Again, it looks as though this decision to sanction the Russian central bank was made without any knowledge of the Fed. It was made by, you know, economic advisors to the president as, oh, here's a great way we can stick it to the Russians without too much thought. What's your read on that? My read on it is is the sense I get is that there were two schools of thought around the Uh, sanctioning Russian FX reserves. And school number one can be seen in some of the Bloomberg and Reuters articles we saw heading into 
the that weekend, right? So I think I think we sanctioned them. I think it was Saturday, February 26th. I think that's when the Russian Central Bank Reserves got sanctioned. And and if that's correct, then Friday, February 25th, there was a Bloomberg or Reuters article noting that that Jamie Dimon and Citigroup, uh, J.P. Morgan of J.P. Morgan and Citigroup officials were advising the White House not to weaponize SWIFT or the financial system in that manner against the Russians. As their words, not mine, it would begin to threaten or undermine the role of the dollar globally. And so I think you can see from that school of thought, one is sort of banking system, treasury. I'm not convinced. You know, I, I would say if Jamie Dimon is arguing this, I would we can lump whether the Fed was aware of those sanctions happening or not. I think it's safe to say that the Fed was it was is was in that group. Right. So group one against sanctioning Russian FX reserves, I think we can say was Fed, Treasury, U.S. banking system, Wall Street. On the other side of it, the sense I get is that the U.S. Defense Department and certain intelligence uh, um, uh, groups were in favor of it. I think that is part and parcel to what has been something the Defense Department in particular has long been warning about for over a decade now, uh, that the dollar as system as structured is increasingly a national security risk of the United States because it has hollowed out the U.S. industrial base, and in particular the defense industrial base, to such a great degree that it, at the end of the day, the defense guys are logistics guys. War fighting is, is about logistics. And they've been looking at their logistics supply chains and saying, okay, Washington, you're telling us that our big strategic competitor over the next 10, 20 years is China. We, our analysis suggests our big strategic competitor over the next 10, 20 years is China. And yet this currency system, this monetary system is structured such that we cannot fight a war against China without supply chains based in China. And this is a national security risk. And if you you can see this. It's it's never written out that explicitly per se, but you can go to, there's a publicly available document assessing the U.S. defense and manufacturing supply chain capabilities. It was a, a, a classified version, unclassified version. Obviously, I've only seen the unclassified version. 140-page document was published in October 2018. You read through it and it just goes, you know, chapter and verse on different supply chains that have been hollowed out and moved to China and reviewing the number of supply chains where we are either single source to China, dangerously, you know, dual source to China, et cetera. And it never says anything about the currency system, the dollar specifically, but if you actually search for dollar, right, hit control F and search for dollar, it takes you into the footnotes and it notes that the military is citing work highlighting that China's purchases of treasury bonds was overvaluing the dollar and undervaluing the yuan and as a result hollowing out us manufacturing artificially and weakening the us and so there is an understanding i think in the defense community that the structure of the dollar system is a threat to national security is an underpinning of this hollowing out that is this, this threat to national security and so when we go back to that moment well, how do you fix this well it doesn't mean the U.S. has to lose reserve currency status. It, the U.S. dollar was a reserve currency uh, from 46 to 71. But the primary global reserve asset was gold. 
we had a neutral reserve asset. And we spent a lot of time talking about neutral reserve asset and the history of that and how it appears to be unfolding at a faster pace uh, in the original podcast you were referencing. So I, I, I don't think the military is calling for the end of the dollar's reserve status. I think what the military wants is a move back towards some sort of neutral reserve asset that will then allow the dollar to be appropriately valued vis-a-vis some of these other uh, currencies and specifically the yuan and allow the reshoring of, uh, of, of U.S. manufacturing and U.S. supply chains to address that national security weakness. So with all that as preamble, I think as we go back to February 26, I, my read of it is that you had Fed, Treasury, Wall Street uh, against sanctioning Russian FX reserves because they're in favor of the status quo dollar system. And my view is that defense and certain intelligence establishments were in favor of sanctioning Russian FX reserves. You know, maybe this is ascribing too much Machiavellianism to it, but I, I don't think it is. Is I think they understood that it would discredit FX reserves as a reserve asset. It would give a move that's already underway away from treasuries as the primary global reserve asset toward, I think, gold or a neutral reserve asset. I think they saw this as a way that it would give that movement a big acceleration and allow to serve as a catalyst for further change to the system in a manner that is good for the United States uh, national security defense establishment, supply chains, uh, manufacturing, et cetera. You know, it's funny. Um, what we're talking about, as the, as the title of this podcast suggests, it is perhaps a fundamental shift in the way the global monetary system functions and is constructed. And that's something that's happened many, many, many times uh, throughout history. And yet, you know, because this period post-Bretton Woods has been essentially generational, there are very few people around who have a, an active understanding and memory of that last big shift. And so it seems such a wild idea. And, and I've been fascinated to watch on Twitter, particularly to, to see how people's minds are around this stuff and and the and the unwillingness to even entertain this as an idea because it's just such a big shift you know and, and we look we do we all struggle with um with adapting to change particularly change of, of this magnitude you know it's interesting what you talk about there with that example of the pre-71 system is exactly right and i think it's such a great point that the world did function with the dollar as the reserve currency, but also with that safe harbor in the middle. And, and obviously, if there was a safe harbor in the middle today, it would it would defang the ability of the US to to do what they've done to Russia via the sanctions. Now, that in some people's eyes would be a terrible thing, but the reaction of many many other countries around what's been going on suggests that it would be almost imperative to have somewhere to go that would disavow the US of the ability to arbitrarily decide we are going to mess with your economy, mess with your finances in a way that we deemed appropriate simply because you've done something that we disagree with. Now, we're talking here about an unwarranted invasion of a sovereign nation by Russia, so that let's put that aside. We can all agree that that is absolutely a despicable act by Putin. What we're talking about here is his motives for doing it, whether he's right or wrong is really unquestionable. But there are motives behind it. So let's talk about his reaction to the sanctions because you laid out in that original podcast a series of potential moves that, again, you'd been forecasting long before he went across that border uh, as likely to happen. And they've begun happening in, in remarkably fast fashion. So let's kind of 
do our best to get those in chronological order since the events and talk about the, each of the major moves that have been made and why they're so important. Yeah, absolutely. So when you and I were talking three weeks ago or four weeks ago, it was we speculated that you know step one could be in response to these sanctions, they would demand rubles for their for their oil and gas. And obviously that has come to pass from unfriendly nations or what they deem unfriendly nations. And then the next step or the escalation, what I think I refer to as the nuclear response, uh, at least vis-a-vis currency war, is somehow tying it to gold, right? Demanding gold for oil and saying, listen, we're going to basically value gold at 100 barrels of oil per ounce. All you got to do is you know, go to New York, go to London, buy gold, ship it into us, and we'll give you 100 barrels of oil. Browns. And that's a problem because COMEX LBMA, uh, the ratio right now is 20. So he would set up an arbitrage, a risk-free arbitrage where somebody could go to London, buy physical gold, take it out, send it to Russia, get oil, and do that. Washerins repeat until either London lets the price of gold float to where Putin says it should be at 100 barrels an ounce. Or London and New York run out of gold, in which case they declare force majeure. And and now all of a sudden, again, China, Putin are the de facto gold market. They can declare where gold is. And if they can declare where gold is, they can effectively in some way declare where the dollar is. And it would be moving this system towards some sort of neutral reserve asset. It would be making gold big enough to serve as a neutral reserve asset to settle energy trade effectively. And those are sort of the two steps we laid out as they could happen. And we're seeing signs that things may be moving in that direction. What was fascinating to me is on the 28th of March, they announced this fixed gold price against the ruble, basically. And, and at the time, it was, I think, $52 per gram, if my memory serves. And the, the coverage of it was, you know, scornful. People laughed because at the time, the, the rate was $68 a gram. Again, I, I, I may be slightly off in those, but I'm pretty sure they were, they were the numbers. And so the initial commentary around that was, well, this is just ridiculous. I mean, look what he's doing. He's trying to buy this thing at 52, at 68. Well, that's never going to work. And, and the, the inability of people to see what that meant surprises me. You know, I, I saw a lot of guys who have a great deal of respect for just kind of laughing this particular thing off. Now, obviously... What's happened since then belies that initial kind of mockery of the situation. So, so talk a little bit about what happened there and why that's important. Yeah, I think I, I think it all ties back to this point. What you and I talked about on the original podcast, where I, I, I said I, I thought that Western consensus was greatly undervaluing Russia's leverage in terms of their ability to use oil markets and gold markets, their energy and gold markets to defend the ruble. And in essence, that's what he did with that. And I experienced the same thing, which was people laughed at it at first. And, you know, they were laughing with the ruble at 105 or 110 when he put it on. And, you know, as it it was crossing 74 last week, 10 days later, uh, they weren't laughing anymore. And it's really a very elegant defense of the ruble. Um, now, to be clear, he also raised rates to 20% to help defend yeah. the ruble, which, again, people say, oh, it's manipulated. Well, okay, if it's manipulated, then tell me about Paul Volcker because he did the same damn thing. So, right. um, But to the point at hand, it's really a, an elegant defense because, again, it's 
people look at it solely at the gold, but it's not just the gold. It's the tying of his energy to gold, given the the um, uh, the indispensability of his energy. And, and that we can see, given how much energy the Eurozone is still buying from him throughout this whole time, I think we can say, okay, his energy is indispensable. If his energy is indispensable, then all of a sudden, when he says, gas for rubles from unfriendlies, and we are making a market, uh, the, the Russian Central Bank is buying gold at 5,000 rubles per gram, that's it below the market for the moment. But then you have to say, you think about the squeeze that has been put on. And it's fascinating because Europe needs his energy. Europe is buying the, the Eurostat numbers last year, I want to say were $110 billion, right, of energy from Russia. I up that to $150 billion be just based on price moves year to date, that they'll, they'll do $150 yeah, yeah, billion yeah. this year. Uh, there was an article last week, I think on Thursday, noting that since the invasion, the Europeans had already bought $68 billion in Russian energy. So it's actually on a run rate basis through six weeks. Take that with a grain of salt. It's running at closer to a quarter trillion dollars a year in Russian energy, just from the Europeans. This doesn't include the Americans, another big unfriendly. So if these two unfriendlies are buying, again, to be conservative, $150 billion a year in Russian energy, and the Russians say, we need rubles. No more euros, no more dollars, because we can't give this stuff away for free because you're sanctioning those. There's basically no external ruble market. Like, where do you, there's there, no one sitting around holding ruble reserves somewhere. Only the Russian Central Bank can create them. So how do the Europeans or the Americans get the rubles? Well, one way is, is they can buy gold <laughs> and then they can sell the gold for 5,000 rubles to these Russian central bank, get the rubles and buy the gas. When you're talking about a fundamental mismatch of, of either a, a central bank buying gold, which is, you know, it, it would if news came out that the Europeans were buying gold to buy rubles, gold would massively be massively positive. And then we look back and you, we say, all right, well, Russia has all these gold reserves. They can let the European Central Bank revalue Russia's gold reserves higher to replace the FX reserves they just lost via sanctions a month ago. But the fundamental mismatch, even more basic than that, of the ruble, where you're going to have $150, 200000000000 billion a year of ruble bid from the Europeans alone, there's no offer side. And so you create this ruble short squeeze at a time when the Russians are also have tied, you know, this 5,000 ruble per gram. The higher the ruble goes, once the ruble gets to a certain level, then per that 5,000 ruble per gram, it's not a peg, but this, this deal, we'll call it, whatever, the higher the ruble goes against the dollar, the more uh, an arbitrage opens up for anybody who wants to take advantage of it, right? So you get the ruble to, you know, 60, we'll say, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I want to say that's, that's you know, the, the 5,000 ruble per gram with the ruble at 60 is like $3,000 gold or something. It's, yeah, I, Joe, I've, I've got the number that you put the chart here and I've got it up. At 60, it's 2,600 bucks. Yeah. At 50, it's just over $3,000. Yeah, so it's 60 on the ruble against the dollar. You're at 2,600 bucks. Well, the implication now is, is, all, it's a it's a version of that dynamic that I referred to before about using the gold, about creating this risk-free arbitrage. Now, all you got to do to get cheap, below-market Russian energy is to show up in London and New York, 
buy gold, sell it to the Russians, and you're going at that 5,000 ruble per gram rate, and you're going to end up with a big discount on Russian energy. And so there's this very elegant you know, combination of the ruble for gas and then the 5,000 ruble per gram. The gold is that it, number one, it forces a short squeeze. It weaponizes the energy itself, the indispensability of energy itself to defend the ruble. And then it turbocharges that. Once the ruble gets past basically where the current gold market is, it gets, gets the ruble back to par, back to where it is pre-invasion, which is exactly is what has happened. It gets us into this new zone where it can open up this arbitrage in gold markets for Russian energy and can send gold higher, dramatically higher, or clean out Western gold vaults to get access to that indispensable Russian energy. Now, do I think the West is going to uh, run this gold uh, arbitrage? Probably not. Do I think the Chinese and the Indians will to get cheap energy? Absolutely, I think they will. And I think we're seeing signs already, both from their comments and actions and from the reaction of the U.S. in particular, that moves in that direction may already be underway. Well, look, to, you know, to your point, Javier Blas quoted, and again, you put this in your, in your latest piece, that the quote from the Ind, uh, Indian finance minister, and, I, and I'm going to read this here. He said, uh, I would put my country's interests first. I would put my energy security first. If the f- fuel is available at a discount, why shouldn't I buy it? And of course, he's absolutely right. You know, this is a moral crusade led by the US, backed up by Europe, the difference this time around is we're talking about energy and food here. We're not talking about, you know, tchotchkes or, you know, bling or computer equipment or whatever it might be. We're talking about the basic needs for humanity here, energy and food. And so it's going to be very, very difficult to kind of bring countries to heel that have the kind of dynamics that a country like India has. You know, they need to feed their people. They need energy. And so what this system does is, as you say, it offers them a way to purchase below-market energy, and they almost have to do that. It's not really a choice for them. It's not a, a moral decision. It's a necessity. And, um, you know, I interviewed Jeff Gundlach a few years ago, and he said something that's stuck to me since, and, and I, I bring it out often. You know, he said, you know, they're, they're, we both know that fear and greed are powerful, but there's something more powerful than both, and that's need. He said, if you need to do something, you don't have a choice. And it feels like that's where we're at now. You know, Europe and the US are making choices and they are presenting countries who have needs with a situation that they can use to fulfill those needs. And that's a very dangerous position for the for the US and Europe to be in. I think that's right. And it's fascinating on a number of fronts. And I think it summarizes the fundamental misapprehension that we're seeing amongst a lot of investors in the West, which is centered around, well, Russia's GDP is only the size of whatever, Spain's or Portugal's or, you know, Vermont's or whatever, you know, or or it's it's just a gas station masquerading as a country, as John McCain said, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And there's this fundamental misapprehension where there's probably no country in the world with a bigger gap between the price of its GDP and the value of its GDP. So the price of Russian's GDP is pretty easy to calculate. It's it's energy to oversimplify. It's energy exports times times price of energy times 365 days a year, and there's their there's their GDP. The value of Russian GDP is energy exports times the 
for oil, 25,000 man hours per barrel times $20 per man hour. You know, so each barrel of oil's value in human economic terms is $500,000 per barrel times 365 days a year. And so the, the, the gap between the value of Russian GDP and the price is so big. And everyone in the West, because we've just gotten so used to everything being governed by these numbers on our screens, oh, well, that's, they're, they're tiny, they're irrelevant, these sanctions won't matter, we can get by without it. And the reality is, is as you just said, for India, for, the, for, for China, for, and this is the ironic part, for Europe, <laughs> the, the, the Europeans are acting like they're in our position, in the American position. They're not. They don't have the energy. They, they need Russian energy, and yet they're acting like, uh, like they do. And so there is, I think, a, we're in the early innings of a remarking of the value of Russian GDP, of value of energy and commodities relative to price. And then it also has a, a strategic dynamic where the Chinese and the Indians are at least being honest about their situation. The Europeans are delusional. They do not have the political wherewithal. I mean, we saw already, I think, a hint. We're already seeing shifts to the pretty far right in France, right? Um, in yeah. terms of Le Pen is doing better and better against Macron. Yeah. There are other further right parties that, if thrown in with Le Pen, would win. And, and, and that's now. Now take away, what is it, 40% of European gas? Like everybody's going to go far right. You're going to have some severe political fallout. So I, And that then, of course, I think will put strains on the relationship between Europe and U.S., where I think Louis Gav said it last week, our, our, our buddy Louis said that the Americans are prepared to fight the Russians down to the last European, right? And, and I think that that is, <laughs> right. that is as, as morbid and, and, and sort of tongue-in-cheek as it is, it's it's the perfect description of what's happening. So it, it, it's exactly right. Is this 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 fundamental need is non-negotiable, and since it's non-negotiable, what it implies is, a, is that Putin has way more leverage than uh, most Western analysts and uh, are, are still willing to concede. Yeah, you know, we, we've seen all sorts of commentary about how these are the most severe sanctions ever placed on uh, a country, and, and they are demonstrably so. But what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, as the stuff we've been talking about has kind of unfolded, is kind of increasing desperation on the part of Europe and calls to uh, you know, impose more crippling sanctions on Russia. And, and now they're talking about we need to send weapons to Ukraine. You know, we, we have to defeat Putin at all costs. And from the moral standpoint, of course we do. But unfortunately, the way they've chosen to do that uh, it looks to have the potential to to shoot themselves in the foot first before they start shooting any Russian soldiers. And you know, you laid out in your recent piece the three ways that the US and the EU could kind of get themselves out of this this trap they've they've kind of put themselves in. So let's talk about what those three ways are and try and handicap them. Yeah, there's there's three ways now that this you know if we start with the assumption that the Pandora's box is opened and that Russia now has sort of laid out the financial machinery uh, the currency war machinery uh, of this this connection rubles for gas gas for gold uh, or rubles for gold uh, machinery that we we discussed earlier then one of the three things has to happen either the U.S. and Europe have to completely embargo all Russian energy out of the global economy. Number two is they got to completely embargo all gold out of the 
global economy and basically implement capital controls on the dollar and the euro. Or they have to back off and unsanction Russia and just basically concede that that Putin's outplayed them uh, and that he's free to do what he wants in Ukraine. And maybe they come to some sort of ceasefire arrangement. And as long as he agrees not to do anything in Finland or Sweden or whatever, and then they move on. But even then, the Pandora's box has been open on FX reserves. I'm not sure that that changes anything. I don't think Russia's going to go back or China's going to go back and say, okay, now that that's set, we'll go back to buying a whole bunch of treasuries. Reality is, is they've not been buying treasuries for five or eight years, 10 years, either one of them. But I, I think that Pandora's box, I think, you know, that, that that's water under the bridge. So it really comes down to one of those three things, right? Sanction all the Russian energy out of the market, which implies, to be blunt, economic collapse, famine, starvation, very, very bad things. You're, you're not going to be able to, to do that. And then trying to get all the gold out of the market, I guess you can theoretically do that. And you've seen some U.S. legislation in that direction. You've seen some LBMA comments about conflict gold or you know where the gold's being sourced from, which in theory you can do, but it's like you can melt it down, recast it, put a different stamp on it. Like, good luck with that. Um, it's going to be very difficult to do, or you back off. And so it's this, those are the, those are the three options. And, you know, none of them are particularly palatable. Yeah. I mean, Peter Zion made this point um, in a video he put up recently talking about how with conflict diamonds, you can look at them and you can figure out where they've come from. Gold is gold is gold. You know, as you say, you can melt that down and recast it and you're not going to know any, you've got no means of telling where it's come from. So that, is a non-starter, but you know, interestingly, if if things do calm down, given what's happened with this kind of weaponization of reserves, let's say we get a ceasefire, we get some kind of period where tempers cool and people start talking rationally. You and I both know that in the background, what's going to be happening when things are calm is every central bank in the entire world is going to be trying to readjust their reserve mix is going to be trying to acquire more gold, is going to be trying to lessen their reliance on the dollar during the window they may have where it's not being looked at and it's not being frowned upon to do so. Now, look, the pressure that's been brought to bear already, you know, we've had the US warning India of the consequences of undermining sanctions on Russians by buying oil. So, you know, still this pressure is being brought to bear on anyone that kind of falls out of line with what the US and Europe deem to be appropriate. And and historically, that's worked, right? That's worked. There has been this desire to be good global citizens and to be seen to be on the side of the good guys. Um, and there have been incentives offered to make sure that people are compliant with that. But as I say, we I keep coming back to this. We are now talking about the basic essential inputs for life. And that means all bets are off. You, you cannot force people to do things um, that are against their needs, never mind their best interests. But, you know, I, as as this has all happened in these last few weeks, Luke, you know, the other point I think I'd love you to, to talk about a little uh, from a chart perspective, and we'll use charts just because they're such a great visual representation of what's happened, but there have been all kinds of breakdowns in correlations at times which make no sense at all other than to pin them on what's happening with this dynamic. So talk a little bit about what's happened with gold versus things like treasuries, with gold versus um, you know negative yielding debt, you've you've laid those charts out, and we'll include those in the transcript. But talk a little bit about those kind of breakdowns because I think they are important also. 
Yeah, you've seen in real time, you know, one of, one of my best relationships on Wall Street it says when macro correlations begin to break down, you really have to pay attention because that's when they're speaking to you. They're telling you something. And I've been fascinated to watch what, what you just described, which is historically, as gold has been financialized, gold has been extremely sensitive to rising U.S. nominal rates and, and in particular rising U.S. real rates. So the higher real rates go, higher nominal rates go, gold falls. It is historically rising rates have been very, very bad for gold. And instead, what we've seen over the last three, four months has been this complete break where uh, the amount of negative yielding debt globally has absolutely collapsed. I think it's down 70, 80, 90 percent from from peak level. Yeah. And gold's up, you know, and, and, and these two have been running just, you know, lockstep for the five years prior. The break out of gold relative to 10-year treasuries. I mean, at the end of the day, Gold is just a 0% yielding bond of infinite duration, finite issuance, and infinite face value. And long-dated treasuries are simply uh, sort of the opposite, right? They are uh, infinite issuance, finite duration, finite face value. And so once you are seeing long-duration treasuries get massively outperformed by even longer-duration gold in an environment of rising rates there's something really important happened because as with negative yielding debt, these two have been pretty much in lockstep the whole time. And suddenly there's real outperformance taking place by gold. And I think to your point, there's, I, I think at the very least, this move of sanctioning FX reserves has opened people's eyes to, okay, gold held in my borders. In other words, physical gold, not paper unallocated, unallocated or allocated even gold held somewhere else. But it has it's it's a very big shift toward physical gold. I think it has to probably be playing a role in that. Well and that's that's another great point. This idea of holding your gold in your borders. You know, we saw a decade ago, we saw the Germans repatriate their gold from the New York Fed. And look, the gold market is is a, is a hotbed of conspiracy theories. And at the time, you know, it was taking an awful lot longer for them to get the gold back than it should have done, yada, yada, yada. And you know, it, the conspiracy theories don't really matter. Ultimately, the price is going to be set once physical gold becomes more important than paper gold and, and the leverage is taken out of that system. And again, this could be a catalyst for that. But we've already seen the Australians talking about repatriating their gold, firstly getting it audited for the first time in who knows how long, and then clamours to to have that gold repatriated back to Australia. And of course, it makes perfect sense. You know, there is there is absolutely zero need for the Australians to hold their gold in New York or London. Now, you could argue for liquidity purposes, maybe they need some at the COMEX, um, uh, at the LBMA for liquidity purposes. Fine, keep 5% of your gold there. You, I mean, when was the last time you actually had to sell any? So I think you're going to see this, and, and it's another thing, again, you've spoken about so beautifully for a long time now. What this does is it makes physical gold the only thing you want to own. Paper gold just won't cut it anymore because of the force majeure situation you talked about earlier on, or the likely force majeure situation. So, so um, talk a little bit about that dynamic and what that renewed need not desire, need to, first of all, verify your gold is where it's supposed to be and hasn't been rehypothecated. And secondly, for the sake of safety, bring home the most valuable asset that your country owns. I think it's, if, I think it all goes back to energy ultimately, right? Is if FX reserves are no longer safe, 
then the biggest energy exporter in the world is no longer going to accept <laughs> those those you know are going to want to store their surpluses there this tie of energy to gold is so critical because now gold becomes equal to energy people say well gold isn't used for anything well gold's used to buy energy it's very very valuable and ultimately i think this all ties back to the geology of what's going on which is peak cheap energy right where and we talked about this in the first podcast where if as empirically we're seeing the incremental energy barrel requires higher and higher and higher prices of oil and gas in dollar terms just to replenish and maybe even grow our reserve base a bit, then holding your reserves as an energy producer like Russia, like Saudi, like Iran, et cetera, holding your reserves that you, your surpluses that you earn from selling energy in sovereign debt FX reserves that are falling in real terms versus that energy, that's an unsustainable deal for energy exporters. They need a reserve asset whose face value, to my prior point, is infinite, that the price of gold can rise with the price of energy and keep the FX reserves balances of Russia, Saudi, Iran, et cetera, whole in energy terms. And in the same way, that China can keep their FX reserves whole in energy terms because they're short energy. And the Europeans, same thing, they're short energy. They need a reserve asset that won't deteriorate in real terms relative to energy and commodities. And so I think the fundamental driver to all of this is this peak cheap energy situation where you can no longer store FX reserves in sovereign debt because it it's guaranteed to lose value over energy over time. And once it loses enough, you're going to have a balance of payments crisis and your, your economy is going to collapse. And, and you know that pushes you to, to find a reserve asset who has a flexible face value, whose face value is infinite. And I think that's gold. And that's what we're seeing as the underlying motivator to all of this. And so then the next step to your point is, is okay, if we need to have gold, it can't be paper gold. We have to, it's it's got to be the real thing because otherwise that you know, we've seen the gold's relative underperformance relative to the amount of money printing, et cetera. Gold's price can be managed by central banks, by the expansion of unallocated paper derivatives in particular centered in London. And so you need to have the real thing. Well, if everybody needs the real thing to get the energy, then all of a sudden, the ability to manage the paper gold price really begins to fade and the market starts to become much more physically driven, which in turn to me, and this has been a splinter in my brain as we've sort of worked through this, has been, I in, in the context of all this, I go back to 2019 where the European Central Banks all uh, agreed to not renew the Central Bank Agreement on gold for the first time in 20 years. So for 20 years, they said, we're not going to sell more than 400 tons of gold and uh, gold is still a, an important part of the reserve system. And as a practical matter, they really hadn't sold any gold for, for 10 years. But in 2019, they said, we're not renewing this. Now, I've heard, you know, speculation, I wouldn't, you know, that there were undisclosed terms around the central bank gold agreement that there was not just conditions that we won't sell more than 400 tons, but that there was, we won't buy any. And so if they if that is true and they again this is speculative uh informed speculation based on who I've heard it from if there are if there were terms in there that the European central banks wouldn't buy gold and that agreement was not renewed then all of a sudden 
again, in the context of what I just discussed, that gold is going to be important as a settlement mechanism for energy because of peak cheap energy, that's interesting. When we then go to these Basel regulations around the net stable funding ratio changes for gold markets that uh, went live in the in the U.S. and EU in middle of last year, and then went live in the U.K., the center global center of the gold market in on January 1, 2022, it was a fascinating uh, regulatory changes under Basel because when you read them, it basically seems to mandate via via uh, capital levels the wind down of the paper gold market. It was basically an instruction for for bullion banks to get on size that the gold market is going to start to be more physically driven. And when you when you hear warnings from Basel about systemic stability risks to banks as a result of the gold market, there's only one way, in my view, that the gold market poses systemic stability risks to, to bullion banks. And that's if the price goes up a lot in a relatively compressed period of time. And so, again, I can't prove anything. It's been like a splinter in my brain in the context of these events where you're seeing a geological peak cheap energy reality requiring a change to the reserve system where it's being more, and, and then this FX reserve sanctions also driving more physical gold demand held inside your own borders, things that should make the gold market more physically driven. After three years of sort of potential preparations, if you will, via regulatory fiat to sort of seemingly get the bullion banking system on sides vis-a-vis -vis, or to get ready for the price of gold to rise a lot. So there's I think ultimately it all sort of points to uh, the possibility, if not likelihood, of the gold market being increasingly physically driven, driven by energy, driven by the FX reserve sanctions uh, and, and the resulting reactions of central banks globally um, going forward. It, there's something you said there that, that, that struck me, and that's this inability to, to quote unquote prove this. And this is a very important thing to understand because what we're doing with all of this is talking about a likely future and what may or may not happen. So, of course, none of it's provable, right? We're, what we're trying to do is look at what's happening, try and understand its importance and its place in the whole and figure out what that means from here. And the story of how you and I got connected in the first place has been told and retold many, many times. Um, but, you know, that happened seven years ago now, almost eight years ago. What's fascinating is you couldn't prove any of this stuff at the time then either, right? But <laughs> no. but that, that very first piece of yours I read almost eight years ago now, for me, it dropped so many missing pieces into this jigsaw for me. And again, it, you never said, this is what's going to happen. You said, here's what is happening, and here's how I think it all fits together, and here's how it might play out. And if anybody goes back and reads that piece and looks at the world we're in today and they could actually do that by watching the presentation I built around what we talked about at that time called Get It, Got It Good. I, I, I use that as the basis for that presentation. It's impossible to argue that while you couldn't prove any of this stuff at the time, much of it has either taken place and unfolded over these this intervening period or is happening in a much more compressed time frame now. So, you know, kudos to you, my friend, because it, it, it was an extraordinary roadmap that you laid out, which did seem far-fetched to many at the time and suddenly doesn't seem so far-fetched at all. But coming back to now, what happened yesterday caught your eye and mine, and that was um, Putin's comments. <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to steal your thunder. So, so why don't you talk about what Putin said yesterday? Because I think, again, it starts to demonstrate the way he's thinking versus the way other people are thinking. 
Yeah, I, I, I flagged it to you. Uh, it, it caught my eye. And, and the, the Bloomberg headline, I'll just read it here. It says, Putin says inflation and rising food and petrol prices in West will start to put pressure on politicians there. And to me, it was, you know, it's, it's what, I, what I lovingly refer to as a signpost, right? Where what you and I talked about a month ago in terms of Russia having way more leverage than people thought, and that some of what emboldened Putin was a more accurate read of his leverage and, and the West, the relative leverage of, of his versus the West's, then than the West was was making of the situation. And I think this is a big hint that that was the right way to think about it, The in terms of we were saying that the relative leverage that Russia had relative to the West, which is to say, he knows, I mean, I said in our first podcast, the world can't live without his oil. It just can't. You do the math, you take away his oil. And if the West had less debt, and in particular, less sovereign debt, less entitlement obligations, then yeah, we could take away his oil. Oil prices would spike. We'd have a nasty recession. You'd have a default cycle. It wouldn't matter in the grand scheme of things because it would be a private sector default cycle. And it would be painful, unemployment. You know, it would be it would be 1980, right? Effectively, you know, or, or, or 1974. But it's totally different now because in 1974, 1980, U.S. debt to GDP was 25%, 30%. We could afford that inflation because the resulting increase in bond yields did not threaten the solvency of the United States government. And what I mean by that is, is let's run that out. Let's say we take energy, Russian energy, Russian food out of the system and oil goes to 200, whatever it goes to, some people think 250 bucks. And we have this sort of high 70s type inflation. The Fed could let rates raise, let rates go to 10%, 15% in the 70s and 80s and be the release valve uh, because sovereign debt was low. Now we take U.S. U.S. Treasuries to ten percent. I mean, number one, that's going to take just your interest expense alone, pro forma on thirty trillion in debt. That's three trillion a year. U.S. tax receipts are four trillion a year, give or take. And uh, and those tax receipts are all time highs, boosted by eleven percent nominal GDP growth last year with eight percent inflation, and. The tax receipts are extraordinarily interest rate sensitive now, particularly vis-a-vis the 70s when we were much more, um, uh, much less financialized economy. And so the reality is, is 10% would be $3 trillion in, in interest expense alone. Right now, we're also spending uh, close to $2.6 trillion a year on entitlement paygos, you know, which are basically just the interest expense you need to just float to 100 trillion uh, annually in entitlement obligations and so just those two alone would be 5.6 trillion dollars at 10% with 4 trillion in tax receipts and the reality is that 4 trillion would probably be closer to two and a half or 3 trillion so now let's just say it's 3 trillion for round math in tax receipts down 33% in the nasty recession because we're so financialized asset prices fall and now you've got 5.6 trillion against 3 trillion receipts the fed's going to have to do the difference 2.6 trillion you know whatever that works out to 200 billion a month um 200 to 225 billion a month in QE into an inflation spike and that does not include the 800 billion a year in defense and that doesn't include everything else the government spends on so the reality is the fed would probably have to do uh easily 4 to 4 and a half trillion per year in QE into that inflation spike just to prevent the United States government from nominally defaulting on treasuries and entitlements or slashing defense spending to zero in the middle of a new quote unquote 
Cold War or semi-Cold War, whatever great competition, whatever you want to call this. And when you then tie that back to Putin's comment, it ties back to the greater leverage that he has that the West noted is if the Fed is printing 350, 400 billion a month into $200 oil, what what's oil do? It's 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 about the dollar. It's about inflation. And I think Putin absolutely sees this. And I think if we read between the lines of that comment, I think he sees it. I think that is the crux of the Putin has greater leverage is the U.S. and, and the West more broadly sovereign debt situation has been allowed to rise to such. They, there was always said to be no cost. Hey, debt doesn't matter. Deficits don't matter. Bail it out. Bail it out. Bail it out. And, and they were right. In the short run, it didn't matter. And now when it really matters, when we really need to have that borrowing capacity, that balance sheet space, uh, having a fortress balance sheet, our balance sheet is, you know, it's 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 made of balsa wooden baby tears. <laughs> right. Well, listen, I mean, nothing could have highlighted this better than basically the fact that the same day Putin said that about inflation and running food prices, putting um, pressure on politicians in the West, we get the, I mean, I'm sorry, but it was laughable Biden comment about the Putin price price hike, right? <laughs> now, yeah, that 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 is basically that's the, the 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 relative strength of politicians on both sides of this, right? Putin is holding a foot on the throat of Europe and strangling off their energy supplies, and Biden is trying to come up with a catchy phrase that will hopefully pacify people and and shift blame onto onto the you know the evil man in in the east. You know, the reaction to that that Putin price hike thing yesterday was appropriate, I thought. You know, people people called out just how risible it was, the whole thing. And so, I, you know, I look at that and and you realise that the, 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 the idea that Putin is weak and the West is strong, I don't know that that's true. Uh, I, I didn't think that was necessarily true at the beginning of this. I certainly don't think it's the case now. I mean, it's, look, it's, it's, we're talking relative here and we're talking strong in different areas. But unfortunately, his strength plays into the U.S. weakness, not the other way around. And that, I suspect, is going to be a, a huge problem if the resilience of the Russian currency and its economy is bolstered by exactly what we've just spent the last hour talking about. Yeah, I mean, he has demonstrated conclusively he was able to defend the currency. I mean, I think the game plan for for the U.S. and, and the West more broadly was like, Let's hyperinflate their currency and bring them back to the table. And in one fell swoop, in ten days, I mean, we're talking about a currency here. A currency move, a currency market move for the audience. A big currency move in a year would be ten percent. That's a huge currency move. And the ruble collapsed fifty percent, and then rallied all the way back up, whatever that is, thirty five percent, right off the off the lows. And and now he has shown the mechanism. We discussed the mechanism. They can make the ruble do what they want it to do. And I think it ties back to this point that and I'm pretty sure you and I discussed last time, which is within the petrodollar, the real value isn't the pet or isn't the dollar, it's the petro, right? It's it's if you want to understand everybody in the West understands the price of gas, right? It's whatever, five bucks a gallon right now, four bucks a gallon. You want to understand the value of gas, fill up your car, drive it till it gets empty, and then get out and push it back to where you started from. And <laughs> like that's the side that you know, the the I didn't watch the Biden press conference yesterday. I've seen some of the highlights of it, but it's it just follows a pattern in U.S. politics that has really evolved over the last ten years. I would say 
that is, and I, and I, I, I coined the phrase, but it's, you know, it's, it's managing to optics instead of managing to outcomes. And it's, I think, ultimately a symptom of sort of this unipolar world. You've got a bunch of senior leaders in the United States that have never really had to engage in diplomacy. They've never been without. They've never been in a serious situation. It's always been, you know, and and, it, and this goes to Europe as well, right? I mean, you how, how can you be a serious person and take your nuclear power plants offline? That's not what a serious person does. There is zero chance the Germans of 1920 to 1930, 1940 would have ceded their energy security to a foreign power. There's less than zero chance. And that's not, I'm saying that making a comparison or anything. I'm just saying in terms of this, I think it's a fundamental symptom of how the fiat currency system, the post-71 dollar status quo, combined with the unipolar moment in history that the U.S. has enjoyed for the last 30 years, has completely detached politicians, policymakers, the ruling class elites from the physical world. They just, it's, you know, always in their, hey, the, the number on my screen and it equals the stuff in my tank, equals the food on my plate. And they've never been through a period of time where that wasn't true, at least, you know, not as in, in, a, uh, in a policy place, right? I mean, they were youngsters when, when we had the gas lines and stuff, but that, you know, that was over. That was, di- it's not different. It's not different this time. This stuff repeats and, and, and things change. So to me, I think this press conference, you know, again, it's just this managing to out, uh, optics instead of outcomes. Well, when stuff gets serious, you have to manage to outcomes. Over the long run, you have to manage to outcomes. And we've spent the last 10, 20 years managing to optics, right? I mean, it was, it's a little bit akin to like saying, all right, well, I'm going to fly a plane from Chicago to Denver or Chicago to San Francisco, and but I'm not going to use any of my instruments and I'm not going to use any of my guidance systems and I'm not going to look out the front window. I'm going to fly the plane by looking at the ground underneath me as I'm going by. And like, it's great for like a thousand miles. And then you hit the Rockies and it's kaboom. And I, I think this situation as it's evolved is really, you know, the plane hitting the Rockies and it's uh, 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 oh, now what do we do? We have inflation. Well, it's not our fault. Nobody cares. No, right? Nope. Nobody cares. Um, your 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 job is to, to 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 manage to outcomes. And there are other places in the world that have that you know they tend to be east in the east that are by virtue of the challenges they've experienced and by virtue of the system they've had to manage to outcomes. They've had to remain in touch with the physical world. They've had to manage their supply chains and their logistics because the downsides are so great for them. The Chinese is a perf- are a perfect example. Like, they don't have the option of pretending that they have enough food and pretending they have enough oil and gas. They don't. They don't. And so here we are. Yeah, so true. Listen, before we finish there's one more thing that I just I'd love you to address briefly and that's um this idea of that Russia has backed the ruble with gold, you know that that's the the kind of phrase that's thrown out there, and it, it's become the kind of ring that everybody wants to wrestle in. You know, it's not what they're doing, but I'd love you just to explain the difference between this idea that the Russians have backed the ruble with gold and what's actually happening. Just just so people can actually understand it when they hear that phrase over and over and over and over again. Yeah, it, it, a, a gold backing would have to require a two way flow of gold, right? So you'd have to have gold willing to go out and in and out of Russia into Russia. My understanding is it's it's not coming out of Russia. It's only going into Russia. It is a bid for gold. Uh, And so it's not gold backing. It is more using gold as a 
as a as a means to acquire rubles as a means to acquire gas. I think it is they are linking gas and gold in a way, uh, you know, basically using gold as a mechanism to get rubles to get gas. Which, given the size of the gas markets, and they came out last week and said this rubles for gas is going to be the model for everything else. You start looking at oil, palladium, platinum, wheat, etc. Uh, there's going to be an enormous bid for rubles if if they do that. And there's no place to get rubles. So uh, now, with that said, if you start looking at the price of gold, Russia would need to run a classical gold standard, which would be, I think, interesting. It's surprisingly low. I want to say it's, you know, $3,000, $2,800, something like that. It's not that far from here, where you want to talk about a nuclear weapon, gold gets that price. Like, listen, now it is a classical gold standard. The ruble price does really well. I don't know if there's any rules of the IMF preventing that. I suspect there probably are. Of course, I'm not sure that those. And if there are, they'll be put in place pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, that's really what it is. It's not a. It's not a goal. They're not backing the the ruble with gold, but they are. They're manage. They're using gold to help manage the international trade value of the ruble and disarm these sanctions very visibly. And they're showing people a roadmap. I mean, the Chinese, you don't think the Chinese have noticed this. Uh, it, it strains credulity to me that if the Chinese do something, we try to sanction them. I think we're going to see some version of the same thing, which is, you know, yuan for goods and we're bidding for gold at whatever, 5,000 yuan per gram. And, and you know, here you go. Well, look, it's, it's been, uh, as always, a fantastic and fascinating conversation. Um, and this is, again, something that you and I will try and chronicle as this whole situation unfolds, because I, I, you know, I think this is the beginning, not the end of something here. Uh, and I think it's something that is perhaps far more important than a lot of people really understand. So we'll do our best to make sure we kind of plot this thing along and, and help people understand the magnitude and the path it's taking. But look, um, before we finish, just let people know uh, who aren't familiar with your work already how they can uh, how they can follow what you do. Because as I've said before many many times, and I'll say it again, I think not only has it been excellent, but I think it is going to be extremely important for people to uh, to be on top of. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, you can go to our website fftt-llc.com. There's information there about both our mass market product, our institutional product, and you can find me on uh, Twitter at, at Luke Groman L U K E G R O M E N. Fantastic. Mate, we will be back to talk about this uh, as more stuff happens. And I dare say it'll be sooner rather than later. But in the meantime, uh, all my best to you and the family. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. That sounds great, my friend. Be well. Take care. Okay, so that's episode one of Shifts Happen in the Books. Rest assured, this story is going to continue to evolve in all sorts of unexpected directions. And many extremely pertinent stories are doubtless going to be underreported by mainstream media. Luke and I will make sure we keep putting the pieces of this jigsaw together as things play out, so please join us as we do just that. If you don't follow Luke's work already, please make sure you check out his website, fftt-llc.com, and of course his active Twitter feed, at Luke Groman. We'll see you next time a shift happens. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.